John 3, starting in verse 31. This then is what scripture says. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Oh, Father, we need your help. Even this, the Sunday before Christmas, so easily our eyes and hearts and even our ears are directed away from you and towards so many other things. We're thinking about family and hosting and making sure there's enough food and the presents are just right. And, and yet what our hearts and souls need so desperately now, God, is to be directed to Jesus. To realize that you and you alone are the thing that our heart needs and must find fulfillment in. Will you help us now to come to the, your word and to see that Jesus alone can bring us to you because he alone rescued us from your wrath. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Last year, a group of 28 scientists went to the top of a mountain in Mozambique called Mount Liko. They had found it through high-tech means. They, they used Google Earth. And they noticed that the top of this 400-foot mountain was a green patch that no one had ever ventured inside of. Turned out that it was, as best they could tell, an undisturbed rainforest. Now, this was the opportunity of a lifetime. They assembled a team of experts from around the world to have an exclusive inside track, a chance to go where no human had ever gone before. Uh, these scientists were not the climbing sort, so nearly all of them had to go through the harrowing experience of rock climbing 400 feet up sheer cliff walls to get to the top. And then they got their prize. They got into this mysterious rainforest. Now, if this were a sci-fi movie, that, at that point, all the excitement would happen. Um, what's inside this forest? We can't wait to find out. But this isn't a sci-fi movie. It's science. It's much more boring than that. Um, they got up there. They spent a few days. They set up a camp. They, they found some, some plants. Uh, There's one guy who was a dung specialist, and he said he found some beautiful specimens. Uh, that just goes to show beauty really is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, they found no birds, surprisingly, some odd animals. And then on one of their last days, they found something that can only be described as a huge letdown. They discovered pots and pans that they didn't bring with them. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't so exclusive of a spot as they thought. Well, you and I know, especially at the Christmas time of year, we, you know to be a little bit skeptical about claims of exclusivity, right? 
Maybe it's a mailer that comes into your mailbox and it says, you've been invited to a very exclusive new credit card. Or maybe it's a message on your cell phone that says, uh, I have an exclusive offer for you to buy into a timeshare. We have an understandable amount of incredulity, even skepticism, when someone says, I have an exclusive for you. And yet, let's recognize when there are true exclusives, how that does make something more valuable. Consider the Grand Canyon. There's only one of them, as far as I know. There's a reason why people come from all over the world to the United States to see the Grand Canyon, because you can only see it in one spot. Or consider uh, your marriage. Uh, There should be a level of exclusivity to that relationship that adds an incredible weight and value to it. Where you find a true exclusive, there you have something that really should draw your attention. Now that's true in different arenas of life. It's especially true when it comes to the spiritual world. One of the bedrock truths of Christianity is the claim that Jesus alone can bring us to God safely. That what we need most is a relationship with God, and Jesus is the only one that can get us there. And yet we live in a day and age that finds that a very difficult thing to believe. The passage in front of us shows us not only that Jesus alone can bring us to God, but the reason why he can bring us to God. And so as we study it together, but my hope is that our joy this Christmas would grow, realizing that Jesus has both shown us God, revealed him to us, And that he was able to do so because he rescued us from the wrath of God. We'll see it in two sections. Verse 31 to 34. Jesus alone can reveal God to us. Jesus alone can reveal God to us. And then in 35 through 36. Jesus alone can rescue us from the wrath of God. Let's begin in verses 31 to 34. Jesus alone can reveal God to us. Last week we saw this Incredible account of John the Baptist. He had been on this trajectory where he once was the latest and greatest hot spiritual leader on the scene. He was trending on Instagram and Twitter until one day Jesus showed up. From that day on, he had slowly begun becoming eclipsed as he faded into the background as Jesus, the true sun, began to shine brighter and brighter. In the midst of this decline and uh, stepping back of John, we saw this beautiful verse that Christians for millennia have been finding so treasuring. In verse 30, John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. John found a joy in being eclipsed by Christ because he realized that all in his life was from Christ and it was all for him in the first place. Well, this week, the author, John, interjects and gives us a little explanation. Why is it that John has to decrease and Jesus has to increase? What can Jesus do that John can't? That's the answer that we get in these two sections. First, he tells us that Jesus can reveal God in a way John couldn't. Now, if you've been paying attention, John has been revealing true things about God, much like the other prophets that have come before him. There's a long line of prophets that have spoken for God and revealed aspects of God that are true. And yet Jesus reveals God in a way that no prophet before can. Look what verse 31 says. He who comes from above 
is above all. Why can Jesus reveal God to us in a new way? Well, it's because of where he's from. Jesus is from heaven. Every Christmas, we celebrate the fact that we call the, the incarnation, that the Lord of heaven, God the Son, stepped off of his throne and came down into the earth as a little baby in Bethlehem. We're not celebrating the fact that just a baby came. We're celebrating, one of the reasons we're celebrating is because God is showing something to us he had not shown before. Jesus is the final revelation from God. When I was a student pastor, one of the things I really enjoyed doing was helping students, especially junior high students, get over that awkward kind of first interaction with each other. And uh, I found a game that was really helpful is called Who's From the Furthest? Uh, we get the group together and we would exchange names and all that. And we'd say, okay, we're going to go around in a circle. We're going to see where everyone was born and see who was born the furthest from where we are. So this was in Chicago land, and sometimes you get people that were born on the West Coast. You know, I was born in Flor uh, Louisiana, down like in the South, and that's, that's pretty far. But one time in particular, I was doing this, and there was a, a pretty quiet boy. He was sitting there, and he wasn't saying much, but he had a smirk on his face. And I thought, oh boy, he's got the trump card here. Sure enough, we came around to him, and I knew he was a missionary kid, and he smiled, and he said, I was born in Papua New Guinea. He won. <laughs> now, at that moment, not only did he, his cool factor raise up, but he instantly became the expert on Papua New Guinea. No one else had been there. Certainly no one else was born there. He alone had the ability to tell us about a place that we had never been before. Now, John the Baptist had a lot going for him, but John has the same limitation each and every human that's ever been born has. John had a stamped, uh, stamped on his foot made on earth. John is from here. Not so with Jesus. Jesus' home is from heaven. So Jesus can tell us about the glories of heaven, tell us what God is like, and even reveal something new about God to us. You can see the way John writes this, the second half of the verse there, he, he shows us the limitations of John. He who is on earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That, that's not a knock on John as if John did something wrong. It's just the fact that if you are a created creature, if you're from this earth, then you don't have knowledge of heaven in that way. The point in all this is Jesus alone can reveal to us what God's like because Jesus alone is from heaven. Now, I need to take a, a moment here and talk about something that's been very popular in evangelicalism recently. Sometimes people call it heavenly tourism. It's those books and yet sometimes even movies that give accounts of people that some way or the other, maybe their heart stopped for a time or maybe they have a vision, but they, they go up to heaven and they see God and they see things there and usually they have some sort of message that they're supposed to bring back. I had a guy that was sitting in my dining room table not long ago that claimed this very thing. He told me that he had died and while they were resuscitating him, he had a vision of heaven and wouldn't you know it, God had given him a message to bring back. Now, I understand why people are drawn to those sorts of things. We want something that seems to corroborate the truths that the Scripture teaches, that there is a heaven, that there is a God. And we latch on to things that we think support that. But friends, realize the logic of this verse, it only works if Jesus is the only one that can reveal heaven to us. I don't think people know what they're doing in this point, but 
implicitly what we are doing is we are saying that Jesus is not the final revelation from God, that there's actually another one that's coming after. If this truth were to get deep enough in each of us, if it were to be known among all those who call themselves Christians, there would be a whole host of cults that would go out of business overnight. According to the scriptures, Jesus alone can reveal God to us in this way because Jesus alone has his origin in heaven. Now, that's not the only reason that Jesus alone can bring this revelation. You you can see that in verse 34. Jesus alone can bring this revelation because Jesus alone has the spirit without measure. The Apostle John says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Uh, There's some disagreement as to who is receiving the spirit there. Some think it's referring to the spirit that Jesus gives us when we become believers, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. I think it makes most sense that Jesus is the one who receives this spirit. In that case, this verse is saying that Jesus has a unique ability to reveal God because Jesus is the only one with this Holy Spirit in an unfiltered way. Now, if you know your Bible, you can go back to the Old Testament and find lots of examples where God's spirit enabled people to do things. Israelite kings were said to have the Holy Spirit upon them in order to be able to rule well, even evil Israelite kings. You might remember the story of Samson. The the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and gives him this supernatural strength. And yet, even as there are these many different people that experience the, the spirit of God upon them, That spirit is always given for a specific purpose and for a measured amount. Uh, Think back to me to Elijah. Elijah was a mighty prophet of God. He did incredible miracles and stared down rulers, spoke prophetically. He did that all by the power of the spirit. You remember the protege of his that came after, Elisha? Elisha is said to have a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. You see, as those that God empowers, God gives us a measure of his spirit, enough to accomplish whatever it is he he has for us. That's still true today. For those of us who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit lives inside us, he guides us, he, he gives us gifts. And yet, it's true that we can be filled with the Spirit in a greater way at different times and for different reasons. But not so with Jesus. One day, Jesus went to be baptized, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. From that day forward, the Spirit of God was upon Jesus without measure. Jesus never had limitation. Jesus was given all of God's Spirit, so that that means that he alone can reveal God to us. Now, friends, there are some implications of this to us. If Jesus alone can reveal God to us, then the way we respond to what Jesus says about himself shows how we respond to God himself. You you can see that in verses 32 and 33. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Have you considered what it means if you take Jesus at his word about what he says about God and how to come to him. What that means is in that moment, it's as if you were signing your John Hancock on the message that Jesus has brought. 
That, that term for set his seal, in the ancient world, they didn't use pens and signatures to verify documents. They would use rings or heavy metal implements that would have images embossed on them that you press into wax to make a, a seal. And that seal said that this truly was something that you were signing off on. John tells us here that when we receive the testimony that Jesus gave us, when we receive what he says about God, we confess that God is the source of all truth. Friends, the implication, the opposite of that, is to reject what Jesus says about God, is to call God a liar. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you think it sounds awfully narrow to say that there can be only one way to know God. It seems to you that if, if people are sincere enough and if they find religion helpful for them, that God should just allow all the different roads to reach up to heaven. That any way you take should be fine as long as it's sincere. Now, that's a very popular way of thinking these days, but friend, as humble as that sounds, as good as that sounds, do you realize what you're actually saying? For that to work, you have to take, Christi- uh, you have to take religions like Christianity and Judaism and Islam and any other, any other religion that has an exclusive claim And you have to take upon yourself the ability to rewrite them so that they can be compatible with each other. Far from being a humble thing to do, that we could all get along, in one, one stroke you are actually wiping away millennia of religious thought and saying that you have the answer that everyone else has missed. No, friend, it's no good to pretend you can just shove this off to the side. You have to decide, is Jesus telling the truth or not? If he's telling the truth, then he is the only way to know God. That your very standing before God hinges on how you respond to the message he brings. Otherwise, he and the God he claims to speak for are liars. Now, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian. I hope you know one of the reasons you should find Christmas to be such a joyous time is because you recognize that God has shown himself in a way in the sending of Jesus that you can know God in a way you never knew possible before. That you live in a very privileged era of history. That people long to be in the spot you're in. To know God the way you know him. Because Jesus and Jesus alone reveals God to us. He is the final word of God. Now if that's true that Jesus and Jesus alone can reveal God to us, it makes the stakes even higher because of what comes next. Because the reason that Jesus can be the sole source of revelation for this final revelation of God is found in verse 35 and 36, because Jesus alone can rescue us from the wrath of God. Now, if you were to take a stroll through a bookstore or that has a Christian section or a Christian bookstore, you might be forgiven for thinking that what you need to be forgiven from is something like self-esteem issues, an unhealthy diet, unhealthy relationships. Most of the books that are under the guise of Christianity these days deal with issues like that. And yet, when you look at what the Bible says, our biggest concern is actually that we need to be rescued from the wrath of God. Right there in verse 36, the second half, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
The wrath of God is not a popular thing to talk about these days. There used to be an era where people assumed the wrath of God and had trouble believing the love of God. But these days we assume God must be loving and accepting of all that we do. And the thought of a God that would actually have moral standards, and even more than that, would actually call us to account one day for them. Well, that's the difficult thing to believe. Yet the Bible's clear about this. That one day, each of us will stand before a judgment seat. And sitting on that seat will be a man named Jesus Christ. That all authority has been given him to judge all of us for every single thought and motive and action in our lives. And that there's not a single person that will escape that day of accounting, that day of reckoning. John gets us there. Before he gets there, though, he starts off with something very different. He starts off with the love of God. In verse 35, he says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He backs up to something he's already established back in chapter 1 and even just a little earlier in chapter 3. That the, If you were to go back far enough and you ask what started this whole chain of events of God doing what he's doing in this world, in a word, friend, it is love. The love of God. Not love because we as creatures are lovely, but love because that's just the sort of God he is. A love that goes back to before creation itself happened. Back in eternity as the Father and the Son and the Spirit lived together in a never-ending dance of delight and love. That that love was so exuberant, so joyful, that it actually spilled over into the creation that he made. That love is what sent Jesus to this earth to rescue the unlovely. Here that love is described as the reason that God the Father has entrusted Jesus with all things. In other words, Jesus is given a unique authority that no one else has. He is given the authority to be king of the world. That means he has authority over all that happens in the world, everything on the earth and above the earth. Everything that has happened and will happen, Jesus alone has authority over all of it. What John's most interested, though, is Jesus' authority to rescue sinners. Jesus will be the judge. Why does he have that right? Because he was faithful to go even to the cross. God the Father sent the Son, empowered by the Spirit, to come die a death for sinners as a substitute. And Jesus didn't hold back. He, he gave of his life until there was nothing left. And God proved that his sacrifice was successful by raising him from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. God has given him all authority. What does that mean? Well, friends, it means that Jesus can forgive our sins. Look at the verse 36 there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You understand why Jesus is able to do this? It's because he purchased it on the cross. He's able to say anyone that believes, anyone who believes their sins have already been paid for, and they can have life that starts now and goes on forever. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, but because Jesus gave it to you. Yet there's a, a flip side to that. 
because not all believe. And those who have not believed in Jesus are given here a chilling warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now you may think that talking about the wrath of God makes God sound unloving. That God should just get over it, the fact that people didn't live according to his rules. Or maybe you doubt that if God does exist, that he cares enough to really do anything about the way we live. And yet, friends, when you consider the alternative, what it is to actually live in a world without the wrath of God, there was a man named Peter Hitchens. He was a very well-educated man. He was the brother of atheist Christopher Hitchens, one of, the most, uh, one of the most famous atheists in the world until he died a few years ago. Peter grew up in a, a church, but he abandoned his faith after he got into uh, the scholarly realm, and uh, little by little, he put together life as an atheist. That is, until he was sent on assignment as a reporter into the former Soviet bloc. He says he saw injustice after injustice until one day he came across a man who was dead in the gutter. And knowing what he knew about being a reporter, he knew that this man's murderer would have no consequences. He started to become haunted by that fact. Later, he was sent into one of the most dangerous and war-torn uh, parts of the world to, to Mogadishu. He saw the face of evil as violence and cruelty without any brakes applied or let to run rampant. As he thought through what he was seeing, he realized there would be, in all likelihood, no earthly justice for these crimes. And as he thought about that, he realized that he could not live with the thought that all of this was meaningless, that there would be no consequence, no day of reckoning, that this is all just atoms bouncing until one day they stop and it's all meaningless. He realized that without a judge, without a law and a lawgiver, that life itself starts to come unraveled. You know that to be true, don't you, friend? You can't live in this world as if there is no law, there is no lawgiver, and ultimately there will be no day of reckoning. Oh, let me show you how this is true in your own life. Uh, maybe it's easy enough to brush off the bad things that happen in the world as just unfortunate or, or things that you wish didn't happen, but what about when something really awful is done to you? In that moment, are you thinking to yourself, well, that was too bad? Or do you know deep down it's not supposed to be this way? See, the Bible shows itself to be true to life in this moment. Because whether you believe in God or you don't, the reality of evil in this world is unmistakable. Testimony of Scripture is clear. There will be a day of judgment a day when all of us will stand before a holy God, a God who has given us life itself and written within us the law on our hearts, and each of us will give an account for every single action that we've taken, every heart, motivation, even the thoughts that only you know about. It may seem harsh to talk about the wrath of God, but friend, if it's true, it's not unloving. You warn those whom you love about peril that they are heading into. 
Notice here that the verse does not say that the wrath of God will be put on them, but it says that the wrath of God already is on them, that it remains on them. You might think to yourself, okay, well and good, I, I can be with you that there's evil out there. I can be with you there will be some that will be under God's judgment, but clearly it's only for the worst of sinners. And yet if you understand what the Bible says about us, the things that gets the wrath of God most quickly to be shown are not just the sins we commit against each other, as bad as those are. It's the sins we make against God himself. Idolatry is the thing that most often carries the wrath of God into this world. You see, at our hearts, at the root of all other sins, is the sin of trying to take God off his throne and put someone or something else on there instead. Maybe it's sin, the idolatry of comfort, wanting above all to be safe and secure. Maybe it's the idolatry of pride, to never want to have to give an account to anyone, to answer to anyone. The Bible's testimony is clear. We are not just people with a few mistakes. We are traitors. We have tried to kick the king off the throne and take it for ourselves or put someone else there. And the only due penalty for a traitor is death. So why is Christmas good news? It's good news because God rescued us from his wrath by sending Jesus into the world. See, Christmas shouldn't just be a season where we love to be around family and like singing familiar songs and like all the decorations. At its most fundamental, the reason we should be joyous at Christmas is because traitorous rebels like us have been saved from the wrath of God because Jesus came to save us. See, if you have trouble putting together the love of God and the wrath of God, Christmas is a time where you don't just remember the baby in the manger in Bethlehem, but you look forward to where that baby would go 30 years later, to the cross, where the love of God and the wrath of God meet, where God would show himself to be fully just, to be a God who cares, to be a God who will deal with sin in all of its ugliness by punishing it in his son, and to show himself to be a God of love. They would give us a rescue that we don't deserve, to shower us with his love, so that now we can actually come to him, not as enemies, but as dearly loved friends. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, would you remember why it is that you should be joyous? It's because God has rescued you in Christ Jesus. In just a second, we're going to sing a song that talks about this wondrous mystery of what Jesus accomplished for us. It says, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't, have this joy yourself. You can have it today. You can trust in Jesus and you can find he will provide all that you need to be right with God and joy here and now that goes on forever. But friends, you have to hear the warning that's 
present here. For each of us, there will come a final day, a final hour, a final minute, even a final breath. None of us knows when we will be called before the judge. But what's been shown to you here is what you will find when you arrive. Friend, would you find rescue by believing in Jesus? There's no other way to be right with God. There's no guarantee you have tomorrow, much less the next day. Would you put your trust in Christ today? For all of us who are Christians, we should find Christmas to be the most joyous of times. Not because of all the Christmas cheese, but because Jesus revealed God to us and he rescued us from his wrath. His wrath. There was a man in the 1700s that got a preacher merit badge. He was a part of a very exclusive, exclusive club. He was one of the preachers that was not a believer before he started ministry. Um, he went by the name of William Grimshaw. Along the way, he started taking seriously what the Bible said about judgment and his sin. And as he did so, he realized that he was not living up to God's standards, and he despaired over that fact. One day, he got up in church, and he said in his sermon, My friends, we are in a damnable state, and I scarcely know how we can get out of it. How would you like that to be your sermon on Sunday? <laughs> there was another time when someone took their life, and he had to go preach the funeral. While he was there, he was speaking of the person. He said, this man took his own life, and I'll probably soon be joining him. He was a man that was feeling the weight of his sin and didn't know the way out. And then one day, he came across a book by a guy named John Owen, a book that in God's kindness was crystal clear on this fact that Jesus rescues sinners. He read that book, and he was converted. This is what he said. I was now willing to renounce myself, every degree of merit and ability, and to embrace Christ only for my all in all. Oh, what a light and comfort did I now enjoy in my own soul, and what a taste of pardoning love of God. Friends, that's the joy that each of us should have in our own hearts if we know Christ this Christmas. We know God because of him, and him alone. And we are rescued from the wrath of God because of him and him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus.